I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode five of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Morgan Wright. Morgan is an internationally recognized expert on cybersecurity strategy, cyberterrorism, identity theft, and privacy. His landmark testimony before Congress on healthcare.gov changed how the government collected personally identifiable information. He has hundreds of appearances on national news, radio, print, and web, and has spoken to audiences around the world. Previously, Morgan was a senior advisor in the U.S. State Department's Anti-Terrorism Assistant Program and a senior law enforcement advisor for the 2012 Republican National Convention. In addition to 18 years in state and local law enforcement, Morgan has developed solutions in defense, justice, and intelligence for the largest technology companies in the world. He has trained over 2,000 law enforcement officers in the investigation of computer crime, including one year training the FBI on internet investigations. And he's also taught behavioral analysis interviewing at the NSA. He's a highly seasoned interviewer and moderator, and Morgan's extremely passionate about cybersecurity and a charismatic interviewee. He has over 400 appearances on national news shows, and in these interviews, he always tries to be inspiring informative, and entertained with just the right amount of humor and wit. In this interview, we discuss cybersecurity in the 2016 presidential election, accountability in cybersecurity and the failure of leadership, investing in people, machine learning, cyber warfare, insider threats, compliance versus security, on-the-job training, the importance of communication skills, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, Morgan, and thank you for joining Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I am fine, recovering. Uh, the election is over. I'm back from New York, so catching up on my sleep. Yeah, I saw that. I saw some of your tweets. You were up in uh, you were up in New York at Fox watching the election unfold. Yeah, I actually got to be in the green room uh, watching all of the folks that were being on TV. Fortunately, a lot of people say, "Well, I didn't see you on TV," and I. Trust me, that's a good thing. If I'd been on TV, it means things would have gone to crap. And the last thing we wanted is is an electronic hanging Chad recount. So no, best of all worlds, no issues, uh, not even a peep. It got done. Um, it's over with. So I think that's that's an element of success. Now, your candidate may not have won. I get that. But however, um, the element of success is that the election went off without a hitch and we have no judicial issues we need to deal with. Yeah, that that's always a good thing. And it's it's funny now that you, you mentioned that we, we kind of put the election behind us now. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like we have to roll up our sleeves a little bit. And I noticed in Trump's transition plan, one of the things he did highlight was uh, making cybersecurity kind of a an issue. What are some of the things that you think need to be part of that that planning? And as we kind of go forward. You know, that's an interesting point because this uh, this election was defined by cyber. In fact, I do a lot of stuff on on Fox News, Fox Business, Sirius XM, um, several of the uh, newspapers, you know, and online properties. And it, it was interesting because the majority of 
things I commented on or was asked to be interviewed on really were related to events around the presidential campaign, whether it was the hacking at the DNC, the hacking at the Podesta emails, Colin Powell's emails, the Hillary Clinton server, uh, the exposure of Sidney Blumenthal's uh, emails by Guccifer, the original Guccifer, Marcel Lazar. So this this election, if nothing else, had an element of cyber in it. Look, four years ago, Doug, nobody could spell cyber. This year, the entire election, I think, had that element, which I think actually influenced it one way or the other. It did have an influence. So I think that going into this, you know, if I were sitting in the room saying, you know, what should we be doing? I, I think there's probably three levels of things you have to worry about is our defenses suck. I mean, quite just to be candid about it, we have great offense. Um, our NSA, our military have tremendous capabilities. However, um, from a defensive standpoint, from a civilian standpoint, a critical infrastructure standpoint, we are way behind the curve, as was evidenced by 21 million SF-86s, of which mine was one of those, the uh, personnel files of people who had security clearances hacked by the Chinese. And, you know, in addition to Black Energy, uh, the successful attack in the Ukraine, or in Ukraine, uh, back in December 23rd, 2015, 700,000 homes. So we've got a porous infrastructure here. So... I would say that's the one thing is that we have to look at it from a critical infrastructure, civilian government, you know, defensive posture, including state and local. So that's one area. I think the second thing, it's the espionage that's going on. It's it's the state actors, the nation state actors. Um, We've got Iran. We've got China. We've got Russia. We've got North Korea. We've got uh, elements of Syria, the Syria Electronic Liberation Army. I mean, we've got all sorts sorts of nation state actors coming in. So we have to be prepared for that. I think a third element is truly it's going to be organized crime. I think people are vastly underestimating, Doug, the impact organized crime is going to have. And the reason I say that is um, is the, the recent denial service attacks that happened against Dyne, um, the DNS provider. I talked with some folks inside the intelligence community, some folks who have been tracking this. And that, if you looked at it, that didn't go after anything military, didn't go after anything government. It just went after commercial uh, enterprises. And so they, they uh, you know, they burned about a third of their available uh, compromised IoT devices to do this. But there's a lot of feeling is that that was a proof of concept. That's an organized crime play, not a nation state actor, you know, not, not one nation trying to take down another. So, I mean, those are some of the things I think that um, are some of the key issues we have to look at. It's the insecurity of IoT. Uh, you've got medical devices. So there's a whole range of things I think, but if I was going to boil it down, I'd say those are some of the three key issues that we would need to look at. Yeah, and it's interesting. Now we're seeing that, you know, there's really has to be that pairing between cybersecurity and national security as a joint discussion, um, because for years they've, they've been kind of separate issues. But what do you think it's really going to take before we really have to kind of make some significant progress in that area? Is it one of those situations where something bad has to happen first? Or is there now maybe enough light uh, being shed on this where there, there can hopefully be that, that uh, fuel to get things going? Well, if 21 million um, classified personnel files and uh, attacks against the, the energy infrastructure isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what is at this point. So they should be sufficiently awakened by what has happened. So what we need now is we need some different leadership. Uh, I think it all starts at the top. It's not an issue of technology. It's an issue of leadership. Um, I think there should be greater accountability at the senior executive level for failure, which there has been failure in the past, and this crossed both administrations. i give you an example. 
in OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, which was responsible for hosting all of those personnel files for people who held security clearances, 21 million of them, there had been a standing order in place since 2007 that all data be encrypted. It was never encrypted, not for the next eight years. Somebody should have been fired over that. They should have. In fact, I think it's criminal. I think somebody should have been prosecuted over that. So I think I think we have to change the issue of accountability. Um, one of the things I worked on, uh, Doug, I, I'm an advisor to the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee on the uh, on in Congress, and I've testified there a couple times. And during my testimony on healthcare.gov, the original hearings back in November 2013, one of the things I talked about is there was no there was no accountability. There was a, a, a lack of accountability at the highest levels for achieving these objectives, especially security objectives. So I think you'll see language uh, coming in, at least from the federal government side, to where um, there will be the opportunity to hold senior executives and heads of agencies. You can't hold an agency accountable as much as you can hold a person accountable. So um, as we saw with Sarbanes-Oxley, Doug, you know, the minute you started making CEOs sign on the dotted line to say, hey, your, your 10Ks, your statements are all correct, otherwise you're going to jail – we saw a lot less CEOs going to jail at that standpoint. So accountability does work. You know, there's a shock. But I think it's a transition of leadership. It's a transition of culture. We've got to have the right culture. Um, and I think part of it, too, is IT modernization. Um, full disclosure, I came from Cisco, was there for seven years. You know, I've talked with those folks extensively, too, around security and stuff. It's very difficult to secure ancient technology. We used to have a joke when I was doing work at the Department of Justice on a big information sharing program, but it was called Yesterday's Technology Tomorrow. Very difficult to secure that kind of stuff, Doug. So I think we've got to modernize our infrastructure, then we have to secure it, and then the people are the biggest investment we have to make. I think we've woefully underinvested in the training and the hiring of people and also awareness and you know security training and uh, keeping people up to date on that. You just get, Training is not like – well, training is like bathing, quite frankly. Um, uh, uh, you can usually tell when it hasn't been done. You know, um, it's you – know, Sorry, I just have been, uh, it's been, boy, it was a long week. That's all I can say, Doug. So uh, training, like I say, you know, training is uh, like bathing. You know, neither one is permanent, and you can tell when it hasn't been done in a while. You just can't train somebody once and say, okay, here you go, and then a year later come back and train them again. So I think that, and I think we've got to look at a lot more in terms of automation to close the human skills gap in cybersecurity because we're still down 300,000 jobs. So I think uh, those are some of the things we're going to have to do to help change this culture. But uh, to me, it's leadership, it's accountability, and it's starts at the top. Yeah. And, and to your point, yeah, there's yeah, anywhere we hear the reports from 200,000, 300,000 open jobs just in the U.S. alone, maybe a, a million worldwide when it comes to uh, open cybersecurity positions. But, you know, that's a that's a lot of seats to fill. What are some of the ways that you can think of that might uh, kind of help expedite shoring up that gap? Are, are there maybe different areas that we should be looking at outside of tech or other, you know, maybe other disciplines that, you know, we're not, so we're not necessarily constraining ourselves? Yeah, I was in um, Las Vegas here just recently. I was um, uh, what they called a VIP for IBM on their uh, World of Watson. And there are some very interesting, I talked to a guy named Bob Stasio, former NSA uh, tailored access operation um, guy, you know, the TAO was a very sophisticated group of folks, and him and I have been talking for quite a while now, and we talked about the application of cognitive technology of machine learning so that we can, in a sense, in a, in a to me, my prediction of the future, what I'd love to see happen is the fact is that we would understand for everything from geopolitical to the vulnerabilities that are out there. 
the way that uh, risk and security trends are going and be able to predict what the next area of attack was going to be and pre-mitigate those attacks before the bad guys could even launch them. So I think we've got to make better use of cognitive technology, machine learning, so that we can accelerate our insights um, into this. And then I think to me, it's just automation. I don't think we, you can't train, excuse me, enough people fast enough to get them to fill these gaps. So in the interim, we're going to have to look at uh, you know, how are we going to do this? And I just don't think, you know, and one of the questions you and I talked before we even got started is people always say, well, how did you get started in this? What should I do? Should I go to college? You know, should I get a degree? I, I tell you, I don't know anymore. I mean, that's a tough question, how we're going to fill this. I mean, I don't know that we can wait four years for somebody to go through college, assuming they're on the four-year plan. I told all my kids, you're on the four-year, you may be on the five-year plan, mom and dad are on the four-year plan. Um, you know, I don't know how they're going to get through that fast because then we still have this four-year window. So it's going to have to start earlier. Uh, we're going to have to get. We're going to have to think of non-traditional ways to train people in cybersecurity to get a cadre of people out there that can start doing this work. And then I think better information sharing between the federal government and the private sector on this threat information. You got companies out there like Symantec. Got over a million sensors out there that are collecting threat intelligence. I think more than anybody, including maybe except for one uh, area of the federal government collecting threat intelligence. So I just think we got to make a better use of stuff like that. But uh, there is no easy solution for closing the gap and getting to where we need to be. And looking back, kind of you know, looking back through some of your history, I believe you started out originally in law enforcement, correct? Yes, I did. Little street cop. So how do you go from being a street cop to testifying in front of Congress over the, the uh, U.S. healthcare website? That seems like a pretty uh, – you, if, if you said that was going to happen, I guess to yourself, 20 years ago, would you believe that? Uh, well, no, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have known how to spell website. <laughs> so, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. But actually, you know, um, the kind of the transition was kind of funny because I, I looked at it and um, – by nature, I was a lazy guy. I mean, I, I wanted, I worked really hard to find the easiest way to do something so I wouldn't have to work so hard at doing it later. And one of those areas, the way I got started was in, um, when I was a state trooper, it was traffic accident reconstruction. It's a very math intensive, physics intensive, mechanical engineering intensive type of activity, lots of formulas. So if you change one variable, you had to recalculate everything. Well, doing it by hand or doing it on a Texas Instruments, you know, calculator was very time consuming. So a couple of us started learning how to program in basic, wrote some basic programs. From there, it became, hey, I became, was when I was a detective, it's like, hey, the first computer crime classes came out. So in 93, I went through my first training on the investigation of computer crime, started teaching for uh, an organization that taught law enforcement. I mean, I've trained a couple, 3,000, you know, law enforcement officers. I spent a year teaching the FBI how to do internet investigations back in the late 90s before when they were just starting to get into it. Um, I, actually, I'll tell you a funny thing, too, is um, um, I had a friend of mine with the FBI in Dallas. They caught a civil—it ended up being a civil case. They said, there's no law broken here. So he turned it—called me up said, hey, you interested? I said, sure. And it was for the Star Wars, um, Episode One, Power of One. And somebody had leaked confidential plot information on Senator Palpatine, Queen Amidala. So believe it or not, um, cops—you know, law enforcement are the ones that did the—really invented this industry of electronic discovery— that the lawyers use now and stuff, because we were investigating 
Um, we were the ones recovering data from hard drives and floppy disks back then. So, I mean, I just started, I went down that line, but I was always interested in the human behavior side too, Doug, because I still taught interview and interrogation. Actually, I, one of the places I taught was the National Security Agency to the damage assessment agents from Alder James, Earl Edwin Pitts, Harold James Nicholson. You know, it always seems like bad guys always come in, you know, have to have three names, you know, like John Wilkes Booth, you know, stuff like that. So all of these guys had uh, three names. So, but you know, the human behavior side of it was always there, too, because I think those are inextricably linked. And then um, I had, after law enforcement moved out to Virginia, I had the opportunity to work inside the justice and the intelligence and the DOD community. And that's where I really saw the power of technology, what you could do if you understood it. So I ran an incident response team, uh, worked for one of the defense contractors. We actually had been investigating and were feeding intelligence back to the FBI on the original denial of service attacks that happened in February of 2000. A 16-year-old kid named Mafia Boy, you know, launched these attacks that took down eBay and Yahoo and CNN. Um, And so that's kind of how I got into it. And then I've always kept that uh, thing between the human side and the technical side. And then just from there, you know, uh, through uh, places like Unisys and Burning Point and Cisco, um, you know, I stayed very active in it, doing a lot of work in 2012. I was the senior advisor for the uh, Republican National Convention down in Tampa. I was also a senior advisor in the U.S. Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program. Uh, You know, went to some lovely places like Pakistan, but got to go to some fun places like Turkey. Uh, But, you know, I think though that collection of experiences, when it came time and we started looking at healthcare.gov, I looked at healthcare.gov not so much from the technical standpoint. had another friend named uh, Dave Kennedy, a former NSA guy too, Marine. Um, he was the very technical person, but I looked at it too, just from the strategy standpoint. And so that's how I got into that is, you know, it's the combination of uh, poor project management, poor execution on the security, not understanding the threat, not understanding the vectors that you could attack from. And that's how I ended up testifying on that. So I think, you know, for me, it was fortunate because I had a collection of experiences that allowed me to get to that point and being, bring a broad, diverse view, you know, globally to that. So that, I mean, that was kind of how I got involved in that. And I've just, uh, I've been fascinated by how we've divided too much the camps into technology and business, as opposed to, as to your point earlier, national security involves cybersecurity now. It's no longer just uh, guns, you know, bits and bytes and versus bombs and bullets. It's all together now. So I think we have reached that point to where we've crossed the threshold. Cyber is a key part of our national security, and you will see generals 10 years ago, Doug, knew about uh, routing and switching and the implications of networks. We have CEOs that can't even speak to the same levels generals were doing 10 years ago. So I think the private sector and some other folks got to get up to speed and treat it like the discipline it is and not look at it like an ancillary, you know, type function. Sure. And when you kind of look at the the private sector, do you think there's maybe a, you know, maybe a particular industry or sector of the economy that might be more vulnerable than others that maybe even at times don't even think they're a target. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's um, healthcare. I mean, I do a lot of speaking engagements. I have a lot of speaking engagements booked already for 2017 just on healthcare. They surpassed retail as the number one target for hackers, you know, for intrusions, for cybercrime. You know, too many people ran around under the assumption that if they were HIPAA compliant, that they would be okay and protected. Well, that's a failed strategy. I mean, HIPAA is, is a failed uh, program. Uh, you know, people can say, well, it, it, it's done some things on protections. The largest data breaches, some of the largest data breaches have come out of healthcare. So I can't, you can't convince me that HIPAA has been a successful 
programs. So I think there are some industries that are paying the price for it. Uh, the automotive industry. Um, I remember about two and a half years ago, I was on Fox News, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek episode, but it said, can Al-Qaeda really hack your car? And we were talking about the prevalence of now that electronics are coming on board, would you be able to hack a car? And look, I st- it's, it's online, folks. If you Google it, you'll see it. It's on Happening Now with Jenna Lee. I kidded. I said, but no, but with some of these embedded systems, and now if you think about it, even two and a half years ago, Tesla had 3G modems in their cars, you know, three years ago, so to download uh, updates to the firmware. They had, you have to have an IP address to do that. So I said, so don't tell me you can't take over a car, and guess what happened? Um, well, first of all, I got I got beat up by these car blogs like Joe Lopnick and stuff. They made fun of me, and I said, ah, you, you need to be careful. Then what happens? About a year ago, remember that story? Two guys from DARPA hack a Jeep, drive it into the ditch, and all of a sudden the, the automotive industry goes, oh, my goodness, we need, we need to start an information sharing analysis center in ISAC for the automotive industry. We've got to start hardening our cars. Well, people were telling them that 15 years ago. So I think there's a lot of failure of leadership in the private sector. I'm not just beating up on the government. I think the private sector has had its fair share of failure or leadership in key industries. Yeah, and, and to that point, too, when you look at smart cars or Internet of Things, and we had the recent, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, d- the distributed di- denial of service attack along that, do you think – there is maybe certain technologies like that that are getting overly adopted or maybe adopted without uh, evaluating all the risks that we're bringing to possibly our homes or around our lives. I think the IoT uh, was a wake up for a lot of people who manufacture devices that they say, quote, are smart devices, which are actually stupid devices, because there's about 68 to 70 common set of usernames and passwords out there. And this this Mirai uh, malware was exploiting that, including some basic brute force attacks against uh, dictionary attacks against passwords. So, I mean, they, there was some basic stuff that manufacturers of these devices either failed to do or chose not to do because of business reasons. And now we went from where a 16-year-old in February of 2000 was able to launch an an attack and take down a big portion of the Internet. Then we went to the point of where it took very sophisticated actors because our defenses got so good to the point of where now a 16-year-old can cobble together a couple 300,000 devices now, IoT devices that are compromised, and launch a denial-of-service attack that's in the terabytes per second, which is what happened um, to a site in France, I think Brian Krebs, the Krebs on security, his was around the 650 gigabit per second type of attack. But I mean, folks, you got to put that in perspective. If you're download, if you're getting hit with one terabyte per second, that's the equivalent. I think I calculated at one time of about 15 to 20 full length Hollywood feature films every second. I mean, that's a massive amount of data, and it doesn't take a lot of sophistication to do that. So I think we've come full circle back to where script kitties now can actually um, harm the Internet. Yeah, and I think there's you – know, I've, I've heard it talked about a little bit too where there's you know, maybe the um, nation-state actors that have the capabilities to do maybe more uh, visible – damaging attacks have not because there's uh, you know, a bit of a standoff with that, but there's quickly uh, a, a growing base of people, whether it be cyber criminals or, or activists in some form that are gaining new technology that um, they might try to weaponize that and whether it could even be something along the lines of uh, cyber terrorism and where they might not have the capabilities now, but maybe in a few years. So you'll have somebody with the capabilities um, and the the willingness to use it, do you see that as a as a real threat, like cyber terrorism, with that type of uh, adaptation of these or the capabilities growing within these communities? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's there right now. I mean, Black Energy, it's out there. The latest version, I think it's version three or four, you know, is out. And um, that's what took down 700,000 homes in Ukraine in December 23rd, 2015. I mean, they literally took over the computers, started turning off breakers, took out the backup power to two of the three substations so that even even when it failed, they actually attacked their backup power as well and then did a denial of service attack against the telephone system. So, no, look, let's let's be under no illusions. The ability to do this is out there. Some people say, well, why hasn't it happened? Well, here's a couple reasons. And that goes back to my thing when we originally started is it was a quiet night for me on election night. And I was glad for that because you don't want something like that about really probably the only threat we really had was from some ankle biters or somebody wanting to create mischief, which I think could easily be handled. The reason we didn't have a nation state attack is, and uh, here's a really good chance for people to understand what's really going on behind the scenes that you don't hear a lot about. So there's this thing in the U.S. code called Title 10 and Title 50. I mean, there's two of the titles that our military and intelligence community operate under. So the raid to get bin Laden, when Osama bin Laden was killed by SEAL Team 6, that was a Title 50 uh, action because the CIA was in charge of that. So that meant it was clandestine, you know, you're, you're just going in from a surgical strike. Well, the difference between that and Title 10 is we kind of let it be known, and this is the word I got from some people inside DOD, inside the intelligence community, all unclassified folks, so let's not, uh, don't anybody hyperventilate, we're not sharing classified information here. Um, but the thought was is that the reason it didn't happen is because you make it known through official and unofficial channels is that if anybody attacked us during our election night, which is an attack against our democracy, against a sovereign nation, that would then be viewed as a Title Ten response, which meant that it would be a military response, not a clandestine response, which means it's the equivalent of saying, well, we're just not going to sneak up on you and steal stuff from you. We're bringing in the tanks you know, and the infantry and coming after you. So uh, I think that there are some... That only works against nation states. Um, it'd be very difficult to do that against a, a hacking collective or organized crime because you you can't. You could still go after them, but you have to be careful then because then you have your military going after a private individual. So then it's more of a, a different action. It could be NSA or it could be uh, you know an FBI DHS operation. So you know there's a lot of things going on. But you bring up a very interesting point. Um, a few years ago, we only had four domains which the military fought in, sea, air, land, and space. Now we have a fifth domain, cyberspace. So yeah, it's changed everything. It's changed our policies. It's changed our responses. And it's changed who the bad guys are and who we think the bad guys and girls are out there in cyberspace. So we have to have different contingencies to re- respond against organized crime, to respond against a hacktivist group like a, an, an anonymous, to respond against nation-state actors like North Korea when they did Sony, or uh, uh, you've got folks, Syrian Electronic Liberation Army, the Electronic Caliphate. You know, we've got terrorist groups, to your point out there. ISIS is very active. Al-Qaeda is trying to still grow their capability. So yeah, we have a wide range of threats we have to deal with, and there is not one size fits all in terms of response. So this will be another challenge for uh, the Trump administration coming in, is how do we craft the right kind of policies that take into account all the different types of actors that are out there? Is there... You know, if you, if we had to try to maybe focus on one particular type of threat actor, is there one that's maybe more scary than the other tiers, or one is there something that really keeps you awake at night out of that, or is it you know we really have to kind of cover as many bases as possible? Well, yeah, um, fortunately, I don't have to worry about staying awake at night to cover this stuff anymore, so I sleep fairly good. Um, <laughs> However, though, the ones that should be worried, I would worry about Russia, and I would worry about China, and I would definitely worry about Iran. Um, 
for a, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, no matter what you got, folks have to remember Vladimir Putin was originally a KGB uh, agent, or he was with the KGB. Um, that has now been split up into what's called the FSB and the SVR. But they're still a potent force. In fact, there's a lot of thought that they may consolidate those back together to kind of reconstitute the old KGB. Um, so they're still a problem to us. Unit 61398 of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. We've indicted six people, which was a waste of time and energy. We'll never see those six people in the United States. That was just a, 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 an academic activity just to make people feel good that we were doing something. So China is still pilfering our electronic uh, uh, information. In fact, their latest stealth fighter was a direct result of all the espionage, electronic and physical espionage that they've committed against the United States. Iran uh, has their own. Uh, we know that they were in, uh, had compromised one of the dams in upstate New York. And uh, again, critical infrastructure, uh, that's a very vulnerable area. So we know that they're involved there. North Korea, like I said, with uh, Sony which was a quite a very destructive attack. I think a lot of people underestimate what was done there, but it was very destructive in terms of not just the information that was released, but the equipment that was damaged, the things that happened. So, yeah, I mean, I worry about nation-state actors because of the enhanced capability they have. I worry about, some to some extent, about organized crime, but they're a little bit easier to predict in terms of it's going to have to be financially motivated, Uh that they're not in it just to make it. They're not there to make a political statement or to achieve an intelligence objective. That's what the Russians, the Chinese do. Um, they they don't steal data just to steal data. They they want to steal data or break things to either make you pay money, um, find ways to extort you, you know, things like that. So I think there's the motivations change, but the ones that do worry me are going to be I think along the nation state line because they've got the ability to build. Um, devastating types of cyber weapons, and um, I don't think we have. Offensively, we're good. Defensively, we're extremely vulnerable. And that's the one area that does concern me. Yeah. And, and kind of, you know, we've been talking a lot about the kind of maybe outside threats. One of the things I picked up on in your, uh, you know, uh, congressional testimony was the, the talk of the insider threat. It yes. wasn't just about saying, hey, look, there's all these bad people trying to get from the outside in, you know, we have to kind of watch what's happening in inside. How did that kind of come about to making that a, you know, one of the top four bullet points you brought up? Uh, because of, if you look at the damage Alder James did, if you look at the damage uh, from the CIA, if you look at the damage Robert Hansen did, the FBI agent who was arrested, all of those guys are traitors. Uh, if you look at what Edward Snowden did, we can all differ on whether some of you think he's a hero. I think he's a traitor because he actually social engineered passwords. He accessed information he had did not have a legal right to have. But again, he's an insider. So what kind of damage they can do? Significant damage. Trust is not a control. That little yellow line on the highway does not keep that car on the other side. You are trusting that car to stay on the other side. Well, trust is not a control. So I do worry about that from a um, ongoing point is that, look, that's the way espionage is, is committed in that, look, there's also adver there's intentional and unintentional acts, you know, um, uh, inadvertent and advertent. But a lot of data breaches are inadvertent stuff. You got an employee who puts a bunch of healthcare information on a USB or a laptop and loses it. It's still a data breach. It's still the same effect. It just wasn't advertent. It was inadvertent. But that's either poor training, you know, poor processes, poor procedure. Um, and But I do I do worry about the way um, the way to get inside an organization effectively, quickly, and as under the radar as possible is to take your time to become an employee. I, I mean, how do you think the Chinese have been able to pilfer so much uh, information from us on especially stealth technology? 
because they put people in place. They spent years getting people in places. They were patient to get an insider in there. Why? Because an, a trusted insider accessing information does not raise red flags. Somebody attempting to break in from the outside raises the alarms and it, it dictates a response. But how do you defend yourself against somebody you believe is the trusted insider? That's that's the real trick there. And that's the real key to um, getting the security that's both internal and, you know, an external and having them work together. But I think that gets into better processes. We have to interview people differently. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, people got to remember, too, um, the, you know, even the CIA, um, Alder James passed the polygraph during his five-year background and reinvestigation in the polygraph. He passed his polygraph because he got lessons from the Russians on how to socialize the polygrapher and uh, how to make friends just to the extent that all things being equal, he was given the benefit of the doubt. And that's one of the ways he passed the polygraph. Not because he figured out how to trick the polygraph. He figured out how to trick the person giving the polygraph. Yeah, and I think you 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 brushed upon maybe that mindset a little bit earlier, and we were talking about compliance. There seems to be a a difference between a compliance mindset and a security mindset. Would would you say that's accurate? Yeah, compliance is all about checking the boxes. You know, it's not an issue of were we effective. It's that you know, um, hey, we 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 checked the boxes, we complied with all of this stuff, but there's no measurement of outputs. Did but did we achieve what we were trying to do to where our security mindset? is more of the things, you know, security and privacy. Privacy is defining the things you want to keep private, you know, the things that are either public or non-public. Security is the process of enforcing your privacy policy. So you've got to make sure your policies are in place. But yeah, don't confuse compliance with security. There are two different things for two different objectives. Look, uh, I'll give you a perfect example. How many hospitals that have been the victim of data breaches have been HIPAA compliant? All of them. Yeah, and the same thing with the with the payment card industry. I'm, I'm sure you know, the yep. most of the major retailers have, have had PCI compliance checks pass, but we're still massively pwned by by you know, card thieves. Well, a perfect example. I mean, look at Target. Look at um, Home Depot. I mean, look at all of these massive breaches. Yeah, everybody talk goes around say we're PCI compliant, latest standards. You know, well. What does compliance mean? Compliance means you adhere to a set of processes, but nobody's really sat down and measured those processes to say, do they achieve a desired outcome in security, in internal security, you know, in cybersecurity and stuff? So, yeah, no, I, I, it goes back to, again, uh, I, there used to be this old paradigm, and I hear it being used, and I say it's, it's out of date, quit using it. They say people, process, and technology. I think that's out of date. I think, I think it's policy, behavior. And slash training um, and technology. So in other words, you need to, first thing you need to do, I don't care what it is, if you're going to deploy, if you're a police department and you're deploying body-worn cameras to your, uh, the military deploying a new weapon or you're the uh, hospital deploying a new laptop, what's your policy first? Is it written? Do people understand? Have they been trained on it? You know, is it, have you defined the things that you want? Then you train people on the behaviors you want them to exhibit and then only then after doing the first two do you give them the technology. And I'll give you a perfect example, Doug, is that when you got your driver's license, did they just stick you in a car and give you a driver's license and say, here you go? You know? No. <laughs> yeah. No, not my what parents. You, get, you got the driver's handbook, yeah. right? First thing you had to do is learn the rules of the road. Policy. Then what did you do? You had simulators. And then you had a driving instructor. And then and only then after you had passed the first two did they actually turn the keys to the car over to you and allow you to drive solo. Right. Yeah. It, it takes, uh, I think I've spoke to some other 
people uh, that have been on the podcast, we talk about things like that when it comes to certifications or anything that kind of falls into that, where we're mm-hmm. going to measure somebody's knowledge in something. And that basically gives you a uh, that driver's license to say, okay, I'm now qualified to do something, but doesn't mean I, I have necessarily the experience. So that comes back to what we're talking a little bit about, the, kind of some of those skill gaps that yeah. exist because, uh, yeah, certainly somebody can pass a measurable level, but might not really have the experience in doing something. Yeah. Um, and I would call that the CISSP. I mean, I understand it's a good level, right? People say, but that tests on a common body of knowledge, but you want you know, the ones I look at those and I've never gotten certifications like that. Cause to me, it's like, um, to me, I just don't see the value in it from, from a professional standpoint for me, for what I do. There's, it's necessary for other people, but I'll tell you if you, to your point, if you really want to see, and again, full disclosure, being a former Cisco person, but if, if you see the people that have sat down and seen the test for the Cisco Certified Internetworking Expert, the CCIE test, that's a true measure of skills and knowledge. You know, that's the, when you get it, when you get that or the CCNA or I mean, some of the other certs from some of the other companies, too, where you actually are tested on your actual knowledge. You have to solve problems, uh, had to solve a known problem to arrive at a known answer, you know, and fix something. That's the type of stuff I'd like to see. And that doesn't require a college degree to do it. I used to walk down the halls at Cisco, run into guys that would have 50 patents on their wall and they never graduated college. In fact, most of them didn't go to college. You know, they were self-taught. Mm-hmm. And I guess what is some of the training you do look for for yourself um, or have kind of had over the course of your career in cybersecurity that you felt was uh, particularly beneficial? Uh, I tell you, to me, it's immersion, just on the job training. You get out there, you get involved with the project. One of the best ways I learned um, was actually when I was at Unisys, we were doing a bid, uh, two bids. One was called ITMS after 9-11. They stood up the Transportation Security Agency. A huge project, a $1.5 billion bid, was called the Information Technology Management System, I think, ITMS. At the same time, we're also doing a bid for, at that time, what was called INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, which no longer is, exists. It's uh, been, uh, it's now Department of Homeland Security, and you've got Customs and Border Control and ICE and Customs Enforcement. So that's all changed But back then. So I learned a lot by having to research, by being in the trenches, by working with people, actually being on projects, you know, doing stuff like that. And it's, it's kind of like um, you can sit and do um, a bunch of simulators, you know, all you want, uh, but there's no, there is no substitute for real-world experience. So for me, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of being involved. And then as I got to Cisco, um, actually building solutions, looking at what it took to build some of these solutions, working with the, the really smart people and the engineers. Well, here's what I want to do. Is that reasonable? Is it doable? And just getting a better feel for the practicality and reality of, I want to solve a problem. I got good. One of the things I got good at was, understanding what technology could do to solve that problem. I didn't know exactly how the technology worked. In other words, I knew how to flip the light switch and have the lights come on, but I understood enough about electrical um, engineering and mechanical engineering, you know, or and computer systems. I knew what the limitations were, so I knew that if I could think about the problem correctly, I could find the right people to help me solve that problem because they would come up with the solution. I had the answer. I just needed somebody to help me come up with the solution. And who were some of the mentors that you had when you kind of think back looking looking across your career, some of the people that had that type of influence on you? You know, a lot of them were actually peers um, because we were working on projects. But, uh, you know, I've got some there's some great folks at uh, uh, at Cisco that I work with a lot of smart people there. Um, actually, I'll tell you one of the ones at Bearing Point, my former boss there, it was used to be called KPMG Consulting. Um, but he was the number three guy at the FBI, a guy named Bob Sharadio. And what I liked about Bob was he wasn't technical, 
But one thing I learned from him, though, Doug, and this is the thing I would tell other people, um, you there's two things you need to work on no matter what field you're in, especially those cybersecurity, because a lot of people there tend to have two problems. Number one, they're not very good at articulating or presenting to executives. So they say, well, how do I get my project funded? I said, you need to learn... You need to learn presentation skills. You need to learn how to do an executive presentation, which means then second thing is you got to learn how to ask the right questions of the problem. I think too many people don't spend enough time asking the right questions of the data. So folks like him actually helped me hone my craft much more than I learned a lot tactically from people in the field. Uh, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of smart people at a lot of different companies. We worked with a lot of partners at Cisco. And when I was at Alcatel Lucent, I was the vice president in charge of all their global public safety broadband. I worked with people at Bell Labs, um, guy named Dr. Tufik Dumi, Ken Budka. Some of these guys, are, you know, they're, they're MIT people, they're Harvard people, they're Bell Labs. I mean, just just brilliant. And but I think the biggest thing I got out of all of those is not so much learning about the technology, but was learning how to look at the problem in a different way so I could ask different questions and come up with the answers that were needed. I didn't always know the answer, but I knew if I spent enough time, like Albert Einstein said, if I spent enough time thinking about the question, I can easily come up with the answer. And when you kind of think back at some of the advice that you received over your career, what's some of the I guess, a, a marking moment or what's the uh, particular piece of advice that really stood out to you uh, that was a, a really good lesson for you? Um, I, you know, it's, it's um, being over 55 now. Um, I look back, it's maybe it's uh, my age, you know, my mind's like a bookshelf and only so many books you put one on, another one falls off. So trying to think back on that bookshelf there and go, hmm, what was it? I don't know. I think back to even my law enforcement days, you know, when I started off as a rookie, it was uh, being inquisitive, asking questions, don't accept things at face value. Um, one of the reasons I got into a lot of different things, especially as a trooper and a detective, made lots of good cases is that um, I looked at stuff and I just didn't accept stuff at face value. So, I mean, there was a lot of cultural things that taught me well, um, especially, like I said, my boss, you know, Bob Schradio uh, there. Um, and, and I think it was just, I think it wasn't any one person, Doug, but what it was was a combination of things that when I got down to it, it always ended up being is that ask the right questions, work on your communication skills. I mean, Carmine Gallo, good friend of mine, he has written, I was actually featured, uh, quoted in his book on TED Talks. Um, he's a New York Times bestseller, contributor for uh, Forbes, um, is an executive coach to some of the great uh, companies out there. He's worked with the likes of Richard Branson and Bill Gates and folks like that. Uh, one of the things I learned from him was communication. I, I think that is one of the key skills that I learned a lot from him about and about being about passionate, being enthusiastic about what you do, having a command of the facts, you know, for your area and stuff so that you can speak articulately, passionately, and be able to draw on these uh, ideas and anecdotes and bring together facts tell but stories sell. I think it's the ability to be a storyteller that really will differentiate people in their career. This th We're in a different uh, economy now. We're in a different um, generation of people. It, this is really about, I, I think you have to develop those communication skills. And that's, I think, probably one of the best things that served me above anything else. You might be the smartest person in the room, but if you can't get up, like Jack Welsh used to say, one guy, I think he was asking an engineer, and I'm, I know I'm going to get the story a little bit wrong, but he asked the engineer, 
And the guy, he says, well, I don't understand. He says, well, you don't understand. This is very complex. I've spent 25 years working on this. And his response was, well, if you can't explain it to me and make it simple, um, then basically the problem's not mine, it's yours. And so that's the one thing I strive for is how do you take things with all the work I do on the media? You have to take extremely complex things, which the denial of service attack is actually a very complicated thing. In theory, it looks very simple, but a lot of complicated things about how it happened, why it happened. And boil it down and tell a story around that and put it in perspective for people to make them understand. That's why we were talking about, so what does one terabyte a second look like? Well, that's the equivalent, I think, of 10 Library of Congresses, you know, 20 full-length, you know, um, uh, Hollywood movies being downloaded every second. Put it in terms that somebody can relate to. And I, I so I've learned a lot from the communication side. I, you know, I, I've learned more from business people and the communication side than I have for the technical side. And I think those skills have helped me do a better job at being technical than the other way around. Gotcha. And when you when you look at, you know, developing those communication skills, I, I've noticed obviously you've done a lot of uh, media and public speaking. Was that a natural fit for you or was it a skill you had to kind of develop so I started in high school doing debate and forensics, so I, I kind of got into it. I did uh, the junior and senior play. Uh, I was Elwood P. Dowd in Harvey, and then I was Mr. Von Dom in The Diary of Anne Frank. And then when I got to college, I was a music major, instrumental, so it was always kind of, uh, you know, it, that expressive thing. Um, and then I think it naturally led me into um, the, a lot of the behavior analysis I did, the serial crime profiling, the interview and interrogation, to where you had to speak to people, had you had to relate. Uh, you had to sit in a room with people that would you would want to throw up and wash your mouth out after you got through talking with them, but you had to be there. You couldn't give away your true feelings. Uh, you know, people who had committed rape, murder, sexual assault against children. You had to go in there and be a professional and do your job and not let the emotions get to you and actually play your part. So I think all of those things, for me, kind of led into the communications. And then when I ran into folks like Carmine Gallo, he took my skill set and helped me improve it and take it, refine it, and have much more impact. And I think that's what it was, is it's the ability to have greater impact, being able to understand the process of how to design a presentation. A presentation just doesn't appear. I see too many presentations with bullet points. You cannot find one of my presentations in the last 10 years that has bullet points in it. A lot of pictures, keywords, concepts, things like that, so I can speak to it. But you will not find bullet points. And so I think there is an art and a science to communications. And so I think it's been a combination of study, but finding the right people that have helped me clarify my thinking around this and have been able to help me hone my skills and given me the insight to create that impact that you need. And so I think that's then when I started doing the stuff on the media, um, I was telling folks I've been doing this for about 14 years now with uh, Fox News and then Fox Business came on, I think, about 2007 or 8. So I've been on almost every show on those networks. I've done CNN as well, CNBC, um, ABC Nightline, but I primarily tend to do those. But I think part of it is the lessons I've learned from all of these other great people on how to communicate. If I could figure out how to communicate, I can take the complex, make it simple to understand, communicate that to the audience to get the desired impact and the de desired effect. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a continuous learning process. I still learn every day. I learn every week. I'm actually working on a presentation right now where I went and found out what are some of the killer ways people are presenting information. And I'm looking at ideas from some of these sites of how people are doing their current presentations. What type of uh, impact do they have? How do they use visuals? How do they use keywords? So I think it's uh, always a learning process, Doug. And for somebody who is that... Uh... <laughs> Maybe that tech that's been working on a, a problem for 25 years and does have to suddenly present it. What is maybe one or two tips you would give them to say to uh, to to try to be able to 
you know, make that leap to be able to start you know, communicating it better and presenting things like those uh, subject areas better. Yeah, um, go look up Occam's Razor. Um, uh, I think it was Earl of Occam is the story, but um, that's where the saying came from. You know, uh, sometimes the simplest explanation suffices. And then Albert Einstein said, make it as simple as possible, but not any simpler. And I think people think that they have to say too much, which I know I've said too much on this podcast, but I I love this stuff. I mean, when we start talking about this stuff, you get all these ideas coming out. But you've got to simplify. You've got to really understand what is it you're trying to get across. And I I love the rule of threes. Keep it to rule of threes. I mean, great things come in threes. The three little pigs, Charlie's Angels were in threes. The Bee Gees were in threes. You know, um, Marine Corps just had a birthday, happy 241st uh, uh, birthday, Marine Corps. But uh, you've got three uh, rifle platoons in a company, three companies, uh, you know, in a brigade. So um, in a battalion, I mean. So, yeah, I mean, good things come in threes. Keep it in threes. Because why? Because people remember threes. And read books like um, Carmine Gallo. Look up some books by Carmine Gallo on his um, uh presentation secrets to Steve Jobs. He talks about the picture superiority effect, how to use pictures and keywords. You've really got to, you've really got to, this is like learning a skill. If you want to learn to drive, you've got to learn to practice. You've got to rehearse. And when you're doing presentations, it's also about rehearsal. The presentations I give about small business, the ones that I've been doing a lot of speaking engagements on, I've probably practiced those, you know, 75 to 100 times. I don't even have to look at the slides. I know where to advance. I know what's coming up on there. I know how to hit the key points, and it just doesn't happen by accident. So uh, I would say rehearse, find communication courses, join Toastmasters, do something. Your biggest uh, advantage over everybody else, especially if you're in a technical field, is learn the art of communication. Yeah, that seems to be a, uh, a common theme that I've actually started to extract in this podcast. Because one of the things on one of the other interviews came out was, you know, there's this tendency for technical people to want to almost bury the lead. I would kind of do it in, in, in uh, yep. you know, news jargon where let's hold off to the, the good point to the end and kind of build this story. And by that point, you've kind of already lost your audience. Oh, no, it's, I tell you, seriously, uh, if you're hesitant, just find your local Toastmasters. Lots of things out there. Do some things online. Read any book by Carmine Gallo. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of his. Um but the presentation secrets of Ted, you know, uh, the nine great secrets of the world's top speakers. He analyzes all the TED Talks and what works for them. That, I would do stuff like that as well, too. I just think it's absolutely important. Morgan, one of the things you talked about is uh, maybe some non-technical books. You mentioned books by Carmen Gallo. Are there other uh, resources for maybe people in the cybersecurity community that you would recommend, whether it be books or you know, other other things to consume than just technical stuff that can make them possibly better practic- practitioners in the field. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I'd, I'd say there's two things. There's communications, there's presentation skills, so anything along those lines. Uh, I would also do some personal development. Believe it or not, there's a lot of people who don't feel like they have the right to present. You know, they have these limiting beliefs that they have imposter syndrome. Well, who am I to present to a senior vice president and tell them what they need to be doing? So, look, I seriously, I would look at some personal development books. Um, you might find stuff by folks like Darren Hardy, um, Brian Tracy. Uh, you know, even Tony Robbins, I think he's a little over the top on some stuff, but you know, there's some good things in there as well. But I think you've got to do some personal development too. You have to develop yourself as a person so that you feel confident so that you can develop the communication skills and the presentation skills 
to influence, persuade people to your point of view. And you know, the other thing too is it's really, it's, it's sitting back. And I think the other thing people should do is take some time. I mean, one of the things I've been working really hard on um, is planning out my day, planning out my week, making sure I have time to think about things that I've scheduled buffer time. Um, and actually, there is a great book, too, if you really want to accelerate what you're doing. It's called The 12-Week Year. And I was trying to think who did that. I can tell you here in a second. But The 12-Week Year. But it, rather than, you know, a lot of people say they do yearly goals and they go, well, hey, you know, well, uh, what happens at the end of the year, especially when you're in sales and stuff like that? Well, people get that sense of urgency and they go, oh, my goodness, you know, we're going to be able to, um, you know, hit our goals, but we've got to try really hard. It's a stretch goal. And then what do they do? You know, they you have a lot of progress in the last 30 to 45 days. Well, and it's, it's by uh, Brian F. Moran, Brian Moran, M-O-R-A-N. I was just pulling it up on my Kindle. So the 12-week year, I would look at doing things like that using simple tools like Nozbe, N-O-Z-B-E, mm-hmm. which is a task manager tool. But I'll tell you the one thing that might help a lot of people more than anything else, David Allen. I, I highly recommend you read Getting Things Done. It's funny. His second edition. Yeah, funny you should mention that. My, my company's book club that I started, that was the first title uh, I made everybody read. It was spot on. And you you can understand why, because I think the problem with so many people is they get all these open loops in their head that they, they waste a lot of time thinking about things that they shouldn't be thinking. They spend too much time um, dealing with trivial matters as opposed to realizing hey, this is the way the world works. You take the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. And I think getting things done, GTD, and combined with something like a Nosby, a quick app that allows you to schedule it, Put it on your schedule so that you can release your mind from having these open loops and focus on solving problems. Uh, the other thing I do, too, is because I have too much ADD for an adult. I use things like uh, it's called Be Focus Pro, but it's any of the Pomodoro techniques mm-hmm. where you work in concentrated uh, bursts and then you take a little time so that I can focus. Um, you've, I, I, you've got to take control. You know, you folks out there, you've got to take control of your workspace and of your work time, especially if you work in an office. Do not be afraid to say no. And that's the other thing, a piece of advice I think I got too is I used to try to please a lot of people. And then when you realize if you try to please everybody, you please nobody, you've got to say no more often than you say yes. As Steve Jobs said it best. He said, um, um, I'm more proud of the things we've said no to than the things we've said yes to. Yeah, I think he said there was some of the long lines. Like I'll say uh, no to uh, 90, 999 things before I say yes to the thousandth because it's you really have to yeah. create that space. Same thing with Warren Buffett. That's what he says. You know, 99, uh, 90, 999 times out of 1,000, they say no. Yeah. And I think that's an important part of the kind of maybe some of the soft skills that people in cybersecurity that might be a little bit more technically focused uh, should try to develop because it, you know, you really need that space. You need that time to get things done because as we see in cybersecurity, there's only more and more to do in still the fixed amount of time. So until you can really organize it and be effective, you can't really um, have that impact in your organization or to others unless you've really you know got your things together. And that's the key word. That's one of the things I strive for every day. One of my goals I write out, uh, I have three goals for the year and I write them out every day along with the big three things that I want to get done each day. And I know for my first goal, it's a revenue target. To achieve that revenue target, I have to create impact. And I'll tell you, that's that. That's the thing. I, it's hard to get to, but it's the thing you should always strive for. And it's a uh, um, you know, it, you don't get there overnight. But look, um, if you wait to go on vacation till all the traffic lights are green, like you're waiting for that perfect shot, ain't never going to happen. You just got to get out there and start. And I, the biggest thing I think is just take action. Start doing something. Even if you're in the cybersecurity field and you want to learn a new skill. 
then budget your time, you know, create a plan for learning that new skill. Carve out some time, protect it, be very protective of it, and so you can learn that new skill. Say no to things, learn to present, learn to communicate, learn personal development. Look, cybersecurity is a skill that can only get you so far. The people who achieve mastery, uh, which is what Malcolm Gladwell talked about, you know, usually it's 10,000 hours. I can tell you right now, when you look at the people who, who get promoted, the people who make a difference, it's not always based on what they know. It's their communication, presentation skills that make, that are, when all things are being equal, the person who can present better, show better, talk better, articulate better, ask better questions, those are the ones that get the promotions. Those are the ones that get the new projects. Those are the ones that get greater responsibility. And look, you're going to say, well, I'm not very good at doing that. Well, you need to become better at doing it. You need to just make a plan, identify what it is you want to work on, keep it small, keep it in groups of three. Don't try and bite off you know, more than you can chew, the old saying. But really, be focused, do small things, and uh, use that. Use getting things done. Use the twelve-week year so that you actually have smaller things that you're working on, but accomplishing them quicker with that sense of urgency. I think you'll see a m- big difference in your life and how uh, how far you go. Well, it's funny, yeah. As I try to to coach some of my staff, at, you know, that are very technical, I'll say, look, you know, when we do look at security, you know, it's often just focused on the technical, but it's really trying to understand the behavior of the person. Uh, be, be behind the keyboard. That's either if you're doing something that is you're trying to simulate an attack or you're responding to a breach. And I say the same thing. You know, when you're talking to management, even when they're talking to me, is you have to understand that person that you're dealing with and to try to get what you want. Um, it's not just a, you know the technical skill. It's really understanding the the human behavior behind all of this and uh, in trying to develop those that type of perspective. So they continue to work on those soft skills. Hey, look, i give you a quick story from World War II. Um, when they were using uh, certain types of telegraphs and the Enigma machine and stuff, it, it, very complicated stuff. But one of the ways they figured out how to break the code was human behavior, the, the, foul, the, 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 the foibles of humans, and the, uh, they get into these routines. Well, one of the things somebody figured out, and it wasn't a technical person. It was just somebody asking the obvious question by understanding the opposition, which is in Germany at that time, and you'll probably be able to answer this too, Doug. Once you got done talking to a superior officer, what was always the last thing you said before leaving a superior officer? Yeah, I remember in the movie, and I, I can't uh, I can't recall off the top of my head, but yeah. It's Heil Hitler. Know, that's right. <laughs> so what did they start looking? They started realizing that in the majority of these messages, the last two words were always Heil Hitler. Guess what? That gave them enough to start breaking in certain areas some of this code. Because guess what? Human behavior, if you understood the Germans and how addicted they were to process, uh, you know, and, the, and doing things a certain way, the Germans have always been good about engineering and process. Um, so one of the things they realized is that guess what? If they did it then, they'll do it now. And that's, that gave them the insight. And that was done by a non-technical person. Yeah. And kind of stepping um, back a little bit and saying, well, you know, when you look at the security industry, do you think there's one thing out there that's continually kind of given out as bad advice over and over again that kind of makes you, you know, kind of want to pull your hair out or say, you know, the emperor has no clothes kind of moments? Oh, boy. And I'm only um, making you pick one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's this thing of... Um, and I know I'm going to uh, hurt somebody's feelings when I say this, but it's this thing of thinking that you have to have a degree. Look, I've got I've got I've got uh, three degrees, and so don't get me wrong. I'm pointing a finger at myself. Um, I think sometimes we're getting into a world where it's not so much the uh, you know people say, well, what do you have a degree in? Doesn't matter. 
you know, the question is, what is it that I know? How is it, can I apply it? So, I mean, I, I think some, sometimes we get overly impressed with credentialism. Um, and so the credentials, I, I go back to when I was in college, my uh, professor of history was not allowed to teach the PhD level course because he didn't have a PhD, yet the PhD teaching that course was using the book written by my professor. So uh, credentialism, I think that's one of the things. I think the other thing, too, is um, we have too many people that accept things the way they are as opposed to questioning them. Uh, you know, you should question things. A lot of these attacks happen because nobody could imagine. You know, they have a failure of imagination. So one of the lessons of the 9-11 report, uh, commission and report that came out was what we have here is a failure of imagination. I mean, but so, look, I, you know, Doug, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I think there's some things to where people think that, again, it goes like to HIPAA compliance. You know, yeah, well, we're compliant. Well, it doesn't mean anything. You know, like having a CISSP. It means you sat for a test and you passed a test, but what does it does it prove what you know? So I think we've I don't think we need to get enamored with titles. I think what we got to do is look at how do we collaborate better, how do we share information better. Um, I think this whole thing about um, I was trying to figure out a tactful way to say this. Um, you know, look, don't believe just because somebody you think that they're smart and they say something. We have too many people that just run off and do a mat- automatically what they say. I work with some. I'm on an advisory board for a company called Lucent Government Solutions or LGS Innovations now. I got some really smart people. I mean, if I said some of the names and stuff, uh, there'd be some people in your audience who would know who they are. Very smart, do a lot of work for the government. But even I realize that while I'm technically outclassed, I'm not outmatched in terms of my ability to look at a problem and do things. So I think let's not get enamored by celebrities and, you know, um, the flavor of the month. I think that's the other thing, too. Uh, probably the thing that drives me nuts is people get addicted to this flavor of the month. What's the flavor of the month? And let's do this as opposed to let's focus on the basics. Let's keep remembering what the fundamentals are. Let's let's keep improving our skills and quit doing the shiny object syndrome and running off every time there's a new technology you know, these uh, IoT attacks, Doug, happen because of a basic failure of passwords and a basic failure of turning on things like SSH, secure shell, uh, for the non-techie folks out there, creates a, you know, a secure encrypted connection, um, turning on things that should never have been turned on in the first place. So, I mean, I think we have, um, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of things out there that drive me nuts, and most of it, guess what? 80 to 90% of all the problems we have are known problems that things that we should be already have solved for or not doing. There's really nothing new under the sun. So uh, the other thing, too, is I think it's, let me tell you, I'll finish with this. The last thing that drives me nuts are all these companies out there who strive to find the one vulnerability or the one thing, and then they make hay about it all day long, like it's it's nuclear Armageddon and the world's coming to an end because they discovered a zero day or they discovered some kind of an exploit, and they spend you know the next 15 months of their marketing budget talking about the one thing they found. Yeah, I mean, if we've, I think I'm done with the SSL vulnerabilities with their own websites at this point. We've had we've had enough of those, but. <laughs> kind of getting to the point. And to your point, yeah, it's, it's the underlying fundamentals that we keep seeing in the, the data breach reports that come out every year. We might as well just reprint them from five years ago where it's poor credential management, uh, poor patching. It's this it's a commonality of uh, the issues year after year that are still not getting resolved. How, how do we get over that? I mean, what, how do we try to steer the ship the right way at this point? I think some of it starts early on. In other words, to give you a 
quick analogy. Uh, my children, when they were growing up, for one thing, I was a state trooper at the time, but you know, everybody wore seatbelts just from day one. That's the behavior you learned. They get into a car today. I don't have to tell them to put on their seatbelts. That's their habit. That's actually another great book I would tell people to read. Uh, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. Oh, that is just amazing. That's an amazing book. That'll, that'll get you thinking about how to change your thinking about things. But I think it goes back into changing different habits. I think it's the way we educate people. Here's the other thing, too, though, is there is no quick fix for this. There's nothing we can do today that will change the world tomorrow. This is, we've got to be committed to the long term. We don't see something. You may not see something for, uh, you know, 18 months. But I'll tell you, the... Um, uh, Jeff, a guy named Jeff Olson wrote a book called The Slight Edge, and he actually talked about it. Is that, look, you and I, um, let's say that we're, um, we, we're the same height, same weight, let's say, and then over time, you eat an extra cupcake a day or you eat an extra bag of chips a day, and I stay away from those, or I eat just a little bit more healthy. You may not see much of a difference over 12 months because it's so slight, but after 12 months, then 14 months, then 16 months, then 18 months, that gap starts to widen, and pretty soon, there's a big difference between your weight and my weight. Because, look, if you ate a Big Mac and you gained 50 pounds overnight or had a heart attack right away, you know, you, you, would, you wouldn't do it. But it's, it's that incrementalism. It's the death of a thousand cuts. So um, I, I tell you, I just think when we go back and look at stuff, we've got to start, we've got to be just committed to doing the small disciplines repeated daily that are, we know we're good, good hygiene to your point. I'll tell you the other thing I did too, um, Doug, I'll give you a freebie here. Um, I created a password course. It's on Thinkafix, so you can get to it at Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, dot Thinkafix, T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-C.com. This is not a traditional password course. This doesn't say, here's how you set up, you know, it, you got to, I don't go in and say, well, you need to change your passwords every 90 days and stuff. There's another big bunch of crap I'd like to call the industry out on. You're always telling people what they should do. You're never training them how to do it. When's the last time somebody sat down and actually trained you how to create and remember a separate password for every site that you access? People go, oh, that's too difficult. No, it's not difficult because you're, you're teaching it the wrong way. So I teach it about the use of passphrases and some things that once you have a formula, I could publish my formula to you, Doug, right now, you would never still be able to figure out my password, but I have a different password for every site that I access, and I use two-factor authentication on everything. All I do is the basics, and knock on wood, I haven't had problems in probably eight, nine years. So, I mean, I think, I think that's how we change things, is we just do the basic things, but we got to stay committed to doing them over and over again, the small disciplines repeated daily. And we've got to have people who don't, I think the other thing too is the way to get changed is quit to change this concept of accountability because it's too much of a negative. So when you read that book, The 12-Week Year, you'll see a different definition of accountability. Until people hold themselves accountable, you won't get the change. Well, part of that is how to properly lead people, how to properly build a team, how to properly create the right kind of goals so people are enthused to achieve their goals. Then they will hold themselves accountable. You don't have to do any accountability. So uh, the short answer is it's not easy. I just gave you the long answer. It won't be done overnight, but um, if you're going to, the best time to do it is start doing it now. Every day you wait is, you know, one day farther away from achieving where we need to be. So start doing it now, do the simple disciplines and just keep repeating them daily. We will have a profound effect in 18 to 24 months, but most people have the attention span of, you know, goldfish have a longer attention span than adults been scientifically proven now. I believe that. Um, if, if you had to give one piece of advice for somebody starting out in cybersecurity, uh, what would that advice be? Um, learn how to ask questions. Seriously, I mean, that's, I'm serious. It's, it's, uh, it's not just asking questions, but learn how to ask questions. 
sit back and think and learn how to ask, think differently, ask questions so that you can expose the learning that you know you need to have. In other words, it's like um, thinking about like the messages I told you that the Germans were sending through World War II. Somebody sitting back and going, well, we're sitting here trying to crack the messages as opposed to, well, how do people write messages? And how do Germans write messages? And what's the one thing they always do when they write messages? You usually have a greeting and you have an ending. We may not know the greeting, but what's the, what was the ending? It was almost always Heil Hitler. So uh, you could have an, you know, have you ever watched the movie like, or the, the show, the old one, like Candid Camera or Kids Say the Darndest Things? Oh, sure. We need to have people, you know, look, school, and it's unfortunate, and I can't, I, I want to make sure I give credit to the person, but I don't know who said this. He said, but the problem with our education system is children enter the education system as question marks and leave as periods. You know, we quit asking questions. So, I mean, if there's one thing I could tell you, it's ask questions. Learn to ask questions and question everything. I'm not saying about, you know, hey, you need to come eat supper. Well, how come, Mom? Well, because you're going to starve if you don't. I mean, there's some basic things. But when you're given a problem, sit and think about asking different questions of the problem. The data we need to solve, almost everything is out there. We just have to be able to ask the right questions of the data, ask the right questions of the problem. You know, make sure we're looking at the problem correctly. So whether it's cybersecurity, in other words, how do most zero-day exploits get found out? Because people ask questions, well, why can't I do a buffer overflow like this? Or what happens if I do this instead of this? That's how these things are found out, through experimentation. So experiment, ask questions. And so that's, I think, some some excellent advice. And kind of a similar question is if somebody feels they're maybe stagnating or stuck in their cybersecurity career, what advice would you give them to maybe try to make a change or reorient themselves? Um, I think it goes back to the other advice I gave earlier. If you're not reading personal development material, then pick up a book from Darren Hardy or a Brian Tracy or a Jim Rohn and look at how to develop yourself better. A lot of times it's the... Um, People lose um, motivation because they, 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 they're not sure that their uh, input is valued or they don't feel like they're progressing in their career. So learn how to develop yourself. And you know, the other thing too is here's a wild thing. Come up with an idea. Think about becoming an entrepreneur. Look, you know, you know how many people created businesses um, uh, out of just being inside somewhere and going, huh, James Altucher, you know, created the street.com, created a bunch of, I mean, has written a lot of books, uh, and I've got some of those, even reading his stuff. Pick up some stuff, change your environment, change your mind, but look at, hey, look at becoming an entrepreneur. Look at taking my idea and saying, hey, let me work on this. Let me have a project, a hobby that I can get really excited about, and that'll change part of your attitude at work. Look, if you're stuck, you need to ask yourself, is it worth it? You know, is it worth being that unhappy? Go find something else. Go find another job or think about starting something on the side that you can pour your passion into, that will help you also in your day job because you'll be so excited you know, to get to your, um, your project that you're working on is that you'll have a much better attitude during the day. And again, I go back to Doug. There is no silver bullet. There is no, this is just my view of the world, but I know the times where I've been kind of got stagnated, it's because I didn't think I was being valued. Um, I engaged in no personal development. I felt sorry for myself. You know, uh, and I'll tell you the other thing too, folks, this is simple stuff, but get some exercise, get out of your office, go take a walk, get some sunshine, eat better, do a little bit of exercise. It, it goes back to the basics. People come into an office and they sit and they're sedentary for eight hours a day and they want, and then they drive if maybe they have a long commute. And so by the time they get home, they don't want to do anything. They flop in a chair. They might eat some junk food or shovel dinner down really fast. And then they wonder why they feel like crap in the morning. 
you, you got to change what goes into your mind. You got to change what goes into your body to change what comes out of it, you know, later on. Definitely. And if you could time travel and go back and talk to, say, your either 30 or 35 year old self, what advice would you give that Morgan? Invest in Apple and Microsoft. No, <laughs> no. you know, I, th- I think it would be is um, make decisions sooner. Don't put off things. Um, there's some things, uh, some opportunities I regret not taking because I put off making decisions. So I think it's learning to make decisions quicker. Um, and, you know, I, the other advice I give myself is enjoy life, enjoy the ride, you know, um, in just enjoy the things that you do. And if you're not enjoying the things that you do, then get out of it and find something else. I, I will never go back into corporate work. Um, I had the painful uh, uh, responsibility to lay off quite a few people in my last corporate job. I've been given offers to make really, really, really good money, and I've turned them down. I would rather prefer to eke it out right now. I've got some good things working, and you know I'm doing a lot better now than I was three, four years ago. But I wouldn't change it because I'm much happier now. So I think I think it's just making those decisions earlier because um, they do pay off for you. And um, the last thing you want to do is uh, nobody dies. You know, nobody sits on their deathbed going, gee, if I'd only spent more time in the office. I've never heard anybody say that. So go read that book about a nurse who put together all the regrets people had, you know, when they were on their deathbed, when they knew that they were about to pass away in their last stages of life, and listen to the regrets people had. I would go back. I wish I would have read that book, you know, back when I was 35. Mm -hmm. Well, great, Morgan. I really appreciate you uh, providing some insight into this. So uh, what are some of the other things you're up to today, and where can people find you? Well, it's easy. If you can't find me, you shouldn't be on the internet because I'm easy to find. So um, you can find me at my professional site, which is Morgan Wright, M-O-R-G-A-N-W-R-I-G-H-T dot U-S. On Twitter at Morgan Wright underscore U-S. Um, I run a blog and things dedicated towards small business and family at identitysecurity.com. And then um, I'm up to, I'm um, actually just finished a book. I've got a friend of mine, uh, David Webb from SiriusXM, Fox News contributor, writing the intro for me. So I hope to have that done, excuse me, in the next 30 days. And then um, I've actually got, remember what I told you about, you got to find something you're passionate about? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm still a cop at heart. So I'm actually working with a company that has advanced body armor. Um, this stuff is just amazing. It's it's basically bulletproof plastic. It's uh, It's one half to to you know to two thirds the weight of traditional uh, rifle plates and body armor at half the cost. It's just amazing the stuff it's done. So I'm I'm very excited about that as well. So I mean for me, I have several friends that have been killed in the line of duty. I've been to funerals. I've been out to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. A good friend of mine, Kent Newport, his end of watch was October twenty seventh, two thousand fourteen. Good friend of mine, his first ever ride along with the state trooper was with me. And uh, he died in the line of duty. So uh, for me, this is very, uh, this is something I get um, very committed to, very passionate about because I have a very personal connection to it. So those are the things that I'm up to. And that's the point, folks, is that have something outside of your regular day job that you get excited about. Volunteer for something, do something. And uh, it sounds corny, but I think it's really true. Go do something for somebody who can do absolutely nothing for you in return and expect nothing in return. Do it. You do a few of those. I'm guarantee you change your outlook on a lot of things. It'll make you a better person, and you'll get excited every day about uh, waking up. And who was it? The guy that did uh, the movie um, 
um, or um, uh, what was it called? It was that happiness spelled a little bit differently. Um, oh, trying to it was the Wall Street. Will Smith played him in the movie. Um, oh, Pursuit of Happiness. Pursuit of Happiness, right? His famous line was, um, you know, you're at the right job when you wake up in the morning. You can't wait, you know, to start it all over again. I mean, that's when you know you found the right thing. Great. And uh, what I'll do is I'll definitely put all the links to your website, social media uh, online uh, on the show notes so people can find you as well. A little bit easy to click through. Sounds bueno. Great. Well, Morgan, I... I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to do the interview today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Hey, well, look, Doug, first of all, thank you to you for having me on, and thank you for doing this. I think uh, this is exciting because I, I don't think there's enough podcasts out there around cybersecurity and the way you're digging into things, and I think it's critically needed. So uh, kudos to you for doing this, and if I can ever help you out or do anything, you know, don't hesitate to let me know. Great. You bet, sir. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.